Since the COVID-19 outbreak, healthcare provider systems across the nation have experienced shortages in personal protective equipment and other essential products to keep frontline workers protected and to keep the virus at bay. Due to these realities, what have been the lessons learned to better arm our healthcare heroes moving forward? Our next guest is perfectly positioned to answer these vexing questions. In this episode, Sean Powell, Vice President of Strategic Supplier Engagement at Premier, joins us to talk about his team's work and how they're solving these massive and systemic problems. Premier is a healthcare improvement company uniting an alliance of approximately 4,000 U.S. hospitals and health systems and more than 175,000 other providers and organizations to transform healthcare. Sean leads the COVID-19 disaster response team for Premier, which went into action in January to respond to the global crisis. Sean and his team have been diligently working to help inform the CDC, FEMA, Secretary Azar, and the White House Task Force on the challenges in front of us and how best to counteract them. Join Sean and me to find out how Premier is working to meet our healthcare providers' needs to battle the coronavirus and beyond. Welcome to Passionate Pioneers with Mike Baselli, where we highlight and speak with the innovators, the game changers, and the pioneers who are deeply passionate and relentless in solving the problems our world is facing today. This is your opportunity to connect with and learn from these leaders and to support them on their mission. Perhaps they will soon be hearing your story as well. This is Passionate Pioneers with Mike Baselli. I look forward to having you on this journey with us. Sean, given your rigorous schedule during this pandemic, thank you for making a pit stop and joining us on the podcast today. My pleasure, Mike. A pleasure to join you as always. Well, I'm eager to discuss the efforts you have been leading with Premier's COVID-19 disaster response team that serves 4,000 hospitals and 175,000 non-acute providers across our nation. What has been learned since the outbreak, given your efforts, and what we need to be thinking about as a healthcare industry and professionals in it moving forward in order to continue to battle this virus. But before we dive in, Sean, a bit of housekeeping. While listening to any of our episodes, please make sure to join our free online community at passionatepioneers.com in order to share feedback and ideas and interact with the global ecosystem. Lastly, please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast so you will automatically receive episode updates in your podcast player. Simply search Passionate Pioneers with Mike Baselli and Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. All right, Sean, let's first start out. Give us a little bit of an overview of who Premier is, what you guys have been up to historically, and then we're going to dive into what your organization turned on in January around this disaster response team and the efforts you've been leading. But let's first start out, give us that context, frame it up with who and what Premier has been doing historically, and then we'll take it from there. Yeah, thank you, Mike. So Premier is a healthcare transformation company. We've been grounded in data. We've got an incredible and robust database. It's 20 years old with over a thousand facilities that have been contributing their purchasing data to over a hundred billion different data points. So everything we do is grounded in data. We're most known in the industry for the other half of our business, which isn't the IT data side, but it's the group purchasing side. And so we aggregate purchasing power of 4,000 hospitals and 175,000 non-acute facilities, as you mentioned earlier, and really do all we can to represent healthcare providers' needs to the suppliers and manufacturers in the industry and make sure that we're providing a path to improve healthcare and do it in an affordable and effective manner. 
And with that in January of this year, so you guys were kind of ahead of the curve versus what we did as a nation and as communities across the country, really around mid-March of 2020 and locking things down with COVID-19. But in mid-January, you and the team activated this effort around your disaster response team. Take us through that even before, you know, you describe what it is or how it's been working within the industry and, and helping all of your clients and even CDC, FEMA and otherwise. Share with us kind of that inside story. How did this even come about? I mean, it's fascinating. An organization your size activating and his entire team to help battle this virus. Give us a little bit of that inside knowledge and then we'll go from there as to what exactly the response team is and what you have been doing to serve our nation. Happy to, Mike. When we think about any sort of disruption that might impact domestic health care, and we are exclusively focused domestically as far as our footprint, there are several things that we consider. One, we've got a disaster and a disruption team that really has four phases. The activation phase, the preparation phase, the response, and the recovery. And preparation occurs around the clock all year long. You're never a day late to start your preparation. Activation, we tend to engage when we identify that there is risk of a potential disruption. Last year, we saw a 42% increase in product disruptions across healthcare. The year before that, 2018, we saw a 36% increase. So we have seen increasing disruptions across healthcare at an alarming rate. And I think it has a lot to do with just overall globalization, consolidation of healthcare providers, as well as healthcare suppliers within healthcare. When we go back to January, we had been tuned in since late December to Wuhan and to the Ube province as to the fact that there may be an outbreak. So we activated, as you suggested, fairly early, not really anticipating what was to be and what we've experienced for the past several months. But January 23rd was our official activation date. And at that point in time, we really began to look at what the global impact might be if we were to have disruption in so many of the products that are manufactured in China, as well as in Asia Pacific. Some specific examples I'll provide to you through our network, we've identified that 80% of the world's global production of personal protective equipment, PPE, comes from that general geography. And we knew that we had to come up with alternatives if we were going to continue to provide protection for our frontline caregivers, as well as our patients nationally. And was this off a framework that you guys already had? Like, have you turned on the disaster response team specifically for anything in the past? And did you take any of that and, and applied it to today's response team? Was there any historical lens to lean on? Yeah, thanks, Mike. Let's say that this really all started for us nationally with 9-11. And with that, we've seen significant increases, as I suggested, in disruptions. This hit home as far as a global network when we saw the impact of some of the hurricanes in 2017 and 2018. Hurricane Harvey was the first big one in that season and then followed up with several in 2018. And when you look at just the island of Puerto Rico, which is a great destination for many of us for vacation, but it also is home to over 100 manufacturers and suppliers in healthcare. And with that being right in Hurricane Alley year in, year out, we really realized that we needed to prepare more proactively than responsively and reactively during these disruptions. And so there had been a framework that had been put in place around 9-11 that survived us through Katrina, et cetera. But the overall framework has been amplified starting after Hurricane Harvey in 2017. Well, that's excellent historical perspective and definitely makes sense how 
you were so ready as an organization, as a leader within there to activate for COVID-19 and getting ahead of the curve. Well, let's talk about some of the constituents that you guys have been serving since mid to late January with the team. You know, some of those entities include the CDC, FEMA, Secretary Azar, and the White House Task Force on all the challenges in front of us as a nation. Can you walk us through a little bit of what that means? You know, here you are as an organization aggregating data from providers across the country to inform those national leading entities. Walk us through that. What does that mean? How are you informing them? What are some of the insights that you were learning, uh, not only when you activated the response team, but even, you know, through the crisis? Give us a little bit of insight of what that all means to all of us as industry leaders as well. There's a couple concrete examples I'll point to. When we were looking at the impact of PPE, and I'll focus for just a moment on N95s, which is the facial respirator that helps prevent the transmission of COVID and other diseases, we surveyed our members to identify what their inventory on hand looked like. We also looked back at our purchasing database to identify what the history of purchasing of those products looked like. Coming into January, domestically, the acute healthcare systems and this is representative of all hospitals, not just premieres, typically around 25 million N95s in any given year. In mid-February, we identified that close to 20%, 17% to be exact, of the respirators that were on the shelves of our hospitals were expired, meaning that the elastic bands behind them that help secure them to your face, et cetera, had the risk of failing. And As a concrete example, armed with that information, we went to the CDC and the FDA, and granted, we were not the only data point that suggested this, but within five days of presenting that to our counterparts, they provided clearance for the use of expired and industrial masks in healthcare. Why that was such a big deal is because that really opened up a very wide array of options for healthcare providers to protect themselves. And as we looked into the future, going back to that February date and then into March, we went from 25 million masks consumed in any given year domestically. Coming out of June, we were on path to consume roughly 300 million masks annually with a total domestic output capacity of just shy of 100 million masks. And so we really had to figure out how we were going to band together with our counterparts overseas to meet the unmet demand. And so providing data like that to our agencies that we partner with frequently allowed us all to partner and aggregate our information collectively to come up with solutions that we probably wouldn't have been able to do if we weren't opening up those lines of communication. Well, thank you for sharing that as well, Sean. That's a very powerful work. And in regards to other constituents, are you working closely with hospital administrators? You know, we mentioned the work with the CDC and the White House task force and all of that, but are you guys also as an organization on the ground working with hospital executives, administrators, frontline staff through this response team? And what does that look like in practicality and with the tactics on the ground? Yeah, and I'll provide another data point that might be useful here, Mike, is you think about, and I'll use a term here over the next couple of minutes, product allocation. And in healthcare, it may mean different things than it does in other industries, but allocation is typically a protective measure put in place by a supplier or a distributor during times of catastrophe to prevent overordering. So it is absolutely benevolently intended. And to that end, the challenge associated with that is you don't always think about the downstream consequences. With a protective allocation, you're typically, as a healthcare system, limited to ordering a certain quantity of mass that is some percentage of your historical ordering pattern. 
you're also typically not allowing for new customers to purchase your product in order to protect the purchasing of your current customers. Where does this become relevant for COVID? In any given year, historically, we typically see four to 500 products on national allocation. At the peak of COVID in May, we saw nearly 11,000 different healthcare products that were on protective allocation nationally. What did that mean? It meant that the majority of non-acute healthcare providers, and so we play in both spaces, acute and non-acute, didn't have a historical purchasing behavior or pattern. And if you look at where we saw the first death in the United States and the Pacific Northwest, it was at a long-term care facility that didn't have a history of purchasing PPE at the quantities that were going to be necessary to protect their patients and their caregivers. And so as we think about having a national shortage, frankly, it was more indicative of a global shortage, an inability for individual facilities to find additional product in the marketplace because of the fact that these protective allocations were put in place by the manufacturers and the distributors, it really forced us, and yet I use that word, I'll also use the word, gave us an opportunity to find alternatives and work more closely with our healthcare administrators, both again in the acute space, and we're talking you know, level one multi-state IDNs all the way through single owned entities that are dental offices or long-term care facilities and pushed us to find alternative paths for them to obtain the products that would be necessary for them to effectively do their job. So it's been a whirlwind. It's pushed us and challenged us to work in ways that we haven't had to before. I'll give you another example. We had a plethora of gray market and black market activity. A lot of different manufacturers that had never had a place in healthcare before entered the fray, recognizing that there was an opportunity. Premier personally vetted over 2,500 unique new entities over about a 90-day period and identified that we only felt comfortable representing to our membership that roughly 7% of them, right around just under 200, were worthy of doing any type of business with. So it created incredible distraction, not only for our healthcare providers, but also for us. And yet it gave us an opportunity to really figure out where can we find alternatives. And the other thing that it did that I think is so relevant for all of us to pay attention to is exposed some of the dependency that we have on overseas manufacturing. And it really gave us an opportunity. And I'm so excited about so many of the things that while COVID has been detrimental to this country, there are a lot of benefits that are coming out of it including a realization that we do need to prioritize the country where we're placing some of our bets on our manufacturing. And I think there's going to be a lot of benefit that comes back to the U.S. economy once we get back on our feet through production of some of these products here domestically. Well, those are some great insights and perspectives of what we should be thinking about moving forward because you know we're hearing from a lot of leaders in the industry that this is really a dress rehearsal for the future, right? And getting ready for the next big occurrence, the next big crisis that is similar to COVID-19. But with that, you know, Sean, you, here you are leading this effort with a unbelievable organization, Premier, an industry-leading organization. What's keeping you up at night personally? You being in the driver's seat, helping lead this response team, seeing everything on the front lines, you're seeing it, you know, in real time. What's currently keeping you up at night that we should be thinking about? There are a couple things that I'll suggest, Mike. One is anytime that you're in the fog of war, as they say, it becomes increasingly important that you do have a team that surrounds you to be able to pick your head up and look out on the horizon and see where we need to go. And so I'm very thankful to the team that supports Premier as well as our members. 
that includes a lot of the suppliers and the community as well as our federal agencies. I've been very impressed with the amount of collaboration effort that we've seen on multiple fronts. As we think about some of the challenges that we need to be considering, and to your point, I do believe, as you suggested, that this is a bit of a dress rehearsal. Going back to this, some of the statistics I shared earlier, you know, to, to see a 42% increase in product disruptions or events that lead to product disruptions in the past 12 months leads us to only believe that this is only going to continue to force us to get creative, be innovative, and find solutions to prevent these disruptions. To be specific about some of the things that are keeping me up, if you look at the way that we have visibility into our upstream supply chain with our supplier community, it's unlike any other industry. We typically make contracts that are you know, between one and three years. And overnight, you can see a dramatic shift in the way that business is run and the suppliers that are utilized. That doesn't instill confidence in our supplier community to make long-term investments in their sustainability of their output. That's one thing. The second thing, if you look at the visibility that we have, it is very truncated. And I'll give you a couple examples. Even the FDA, who at any given time knows which facilities a manufacturer might have registered to manufacture their products, they depend on the manufacturer to know exclusively which particular facilities are manufacturing which particular products at any given time. What that has led to is an inability and almost a blindness and opacity for us as decision makers and supply chain to really understand where our gaps are. And I say gaps, but it really becomes where are the concentrations that are unhealthy for the supply chain. And so leading into what got us into this mess to begin with, 80% of PPE and the raw material SMS, which is in over 43,000 unique SKUs that are used in healthcare. So being able to try and predict what the next one that might go on shortage was very difficult. Understanding that 80% of that came from Asia Pacific, had we known that, had we had that visibility to understand the explicit volumes that come in and out of that area of the world, would have encouraged us, and I'm not saying we would have made different decisions at the time, but it would have encouraged us to at least open our eyes and say, are we putting all of our eggs into one basket and should we diversify our supply chain? One of the things that I fear gets misrepresented in some of our activity today is if we picked up all that activity and placed it in Iowa, we'd still have the same issue and still be geographically concentrated. And as soon as tornado season started, we'd be in trouble. And so it really becomes a matter of diversifying the supply chain, both onshore, nearshore, as well as offshore, having improved visibility. And that's going to necessitate working with federal agencies to make sure that the general public has ability to understand where does that raw material come from? What are the sub-assembly manufacturers that are included and where are they located? Where are the packagers located? And are they all geographically concentrated or do we have diversity there? These are some of the things that I believe that we're going to lead to improvement and hopefully a reduction in some of those disruptions that I mentioned earlier. And then another thing that keeps me up that we're really focused on and quite frankly excited about is the opportunity for more concrete communication and more consistent paths for communication. I'll give you one concrete example. In the pharmaceutical industry, manufacturers and suppliers are regulatorily mandated to provide input 
and communication to industry at time of potential disruption. In med surge space, which includes so many of the products that we use from bedpans all the way up to pacemakers, there's no regulatory expectation for that communication. And frequently what it leads to is communication after a disruption has already occurred. And then everybody scrambles to try and make sure that they're protecting their patients and their caregivers. They end up hoarding the product. And it's all because of the lack of visibility that we had one to predict it and then two, the communication during it. And so as we think about the improvement in the level of sophistication in supply chain, when we look at electronics, when we look at retail, when we look at automotive, very little of that occurs. And yet when we look at healthcare, it is antiquated in its supply chain. And so there's truly an opportunity and and what I believe is going to be a tremendous revolution within healthcare supply chain coming out of COVID. And it's unfortunate that it took COVID to bring it to light, but I'm excited about what the future of it looks like. Well, thanks for that perspective. And let's change gears a touch before we start winding down here, Sean, as our community gets to know you. And I do recommend everybody go check out Sean's entire body of work, even prior to Premier. I've been fortunate to be friends and work alongside Sean for many years, but from his entrepreneurial and innovation days as well. I tee that up, Sean, for you because you come from that world. Yes, you work for a company traded on NASDAQ, a national leading organization, a big organization, and leading these very important efforts within it. But again, you also come from that startup entrepreneurial kind of community and mind space as well, which I firmly believe, and you've heard me speak about this ad nauseum, that we need more leaders like you inside of large organizations like Premier to continue to reimagine healthcare and our industry moving forward. And so with that, Given your seat at the table, you know, with organizations like CDC, FDA, the White House Task Force, and leading the efforts here at Premier, can you speak to our innovators, speak to our disruptors and our startups? What are some of the things that they need to be considering to build and to answer the call to help be a part of the solution to battle this crisis and to move our country forward? I'll keep it open-ended, but given your perspective and your historical opportunity of being in this community. Can you share with us one to two or three things that we should be thinking about on the innovation side? Yeah. First of all, do not be complacent. Push us, push the industry. When you look across healthcare, there are 36,000 randomized control studies and trials that are published every year. That's nearly 100 a day. What does that lead to? It leads to an inability for true uptick in innovation because the average adoption cycle in healthcare historically has been 17 years. Compare that to tech, which is less than 11 months. We've got to continue to push each other and encourage each other to innovate and to drive change at a quicker pace. So Mike, you mentioned earlier, it's critical that we continue to get innovators inside the four walls of hospitals, inside of our federal agencies, I remain optimistic that we are driving material change within healthcare, and yet we continue to need those that are going to be disruptive, going to be innovative, and are going to improve and increase the cadence at which we're able to adopt this change in a more rapid fashion. So to summarize, express words of encouragement and share with you that I know it can be frustrating. The barriers to entry in healthcare can be large, but they're not insurmountable. And so please continue to push us. You've got allies on both sides of the fence, both provider and supplier that want to drive change, that want to see improvement, that want to improve the level of sophistication in healthcare. So let's partner. Let's find a way to get it done. 
That was absolutely brilliant. And thank you for that, Sean. And I'm going to take a moment to root on the innovators that are within the large organizations, the Fortune 500s, the, the agencies, the four walls of the health system. We also need you as well. What we've been doing for the past 30, 50 years no longer works. It's being laid bare by this pandemic. We need you in this fight. Keep at it. Keep challenging the status quo and jump in and get involved. Roll up your sleeves. Don't take no for an answer. And all of us, from the biggest of the big to the smallest of the small, we need to continue to band together because we put a man on the moon over 50 years ago. If we can do that as a country, I know we can also move the health of our industry and our nation forward when we work together. So with that, Sean, thank you for that. Great perspective, great energy. I knew I could count on you for it. So thank you. Well, as we wrap up, this is important work. And I want to be able to have our community get a hold of you. Where are some touch points online that we can find you, websites or otherwise? And then we'll start shutting it down. Yeah, our primary website is premierinc.com. But the easiest way to get in touch with me personally is on LinkedIn. Certainly happy to follow up and part of the expansion of innovation in healthcare comes with a wide network. And so I welcome invitations from all comers that have similar interests and yet have disparate ideas. We certainly need all the innovation and all the ingenuity that we can as an industry to continue to drive this. So Mike, thanks so much again for your time. Thanks so much for putting this all together and being such an incredible steward of work that needs to be done in healthcare. Well, I certainly appreciate it, Sean, and it has been an honor and a privilege to work alongside you, learn from you and continue to uh, work together to move our industry forward. And for our audience, the touch points online that Sean shared, those will be in the episode notes in your podcast player. Simply scroll down and you'll have those links to get a hold of Sean directly. We'll also have them listed over in our free global online community at passionatepioneers.com. So again, Sean, thank you for being with us today. I know how incredibly busy you are leading the efforts there at, at Premier, but thank you for taking a quick pit stop, spending time with our community and sharing with us where we have been, where we are, and more importantly, where we need to go and where we need to go together. Thank you again for being with us today, Sean. Thanks, Mike. Good luck to you. Thank you for joining us today on Passionate Pioneers with Mike Baselli. We'd love to hear your feedback about the podcast so we can continue to improve this community and to further support the pioneers being featured. Lastly, please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast and invite your friends and colleagues to join us. This is Passionate Pioneers with Mike Baselli. I look forward to having you back with us during our next episode.